Christ's return. What's that? Each other. And, and what is the purpose of uplifting and encouraging and admonishing? I mean, why do we bother with those things? Okay. What is the what is the end state though of all of this? So ultimately, all of us make it to where heaven. heaven. Okay. Um, so we can all hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, one of Satan's most effective tools, and I think I've heard John Grimmett talk about this a lot, is discouragement. It doesn't take much discouragement to have a huge impact on, on our spiritual lives, does it? And so we, we should look for opportunities to uplift and encourage one another. And at the return of Christ, I should be able to boast in every one of you that all of you help me to remain on the right side of things. And all of you should be able to boast the same about me, shouldn't you? And if not, then we have some things to work on. So any comments there about exhorting one another, boasting in one another? Nathan? I'm going to go ahead and throw the next question up and you can be looking at that, but go ahead. I think one of the great importance of um, encouraging one another or, or exhorting one another is the aspect that, to keeping us strong in our faith, for one, but going back to what I referenced earlier in, in Ephesians 4, you know, we are, were created for, for God's glory, for his workmanship, mm -hmm. and to go out in ministry and a lot of times, if we're just sol going solo, we don't have that initial drive and desire to do so because we're a little bit more timid. But when we're together, we're encouraging and uplifting each other to do that. The drive in us becomes more fluent, I guess, and we go out more. Because you know, in Matthew 19, we're told to go out into the world. And when we're going solo, we're more timid about it and want to stay indoors right and but when we're, when we're to, together more and then built up more we want to go out more and you know I, I think that encouragement and uplifting coming together more frequently and having the desire to do so more than just on Sundays and Wednesdays you know, that, that's, that builds up sure it kind of goes back to the uh, synergy I think that I mentioned last week where uh, all of us together you know, the product of all of us together or just a few together is greater than the sum of the individual parts, right? So, um, all right, question number 17. What appears to be the reason Paul's integrity was in question in verses 15 through 17? We've, we've already kind of talked a lot about this, actually. But what was the reason? If you look at verses 15 through 17, what was the reason Paul's integrity was called into question? I think David had an answer earlier last week about this. What was it? Well, they, you know, they thought he wasn't being truthful about his arrival. Yeah, so his, his change in travel plans, right? Uh, you know, it's just as true in, in religion as it is in politics. When your opponents run out of things to, 
attack concerning your message, then what do they start to attack? The, the messenger. They start to attack you. They start to attack your character. You know, that, that seems to be the, the mantra that people operate under, not only today, but back in Paul's day as well. And if you think about it, just from an attacker's perspective, an opponent perspective, attacking a person's character can be a very effective weapon, can't it? And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've ever had your character attacked, you know what I'm talking about because you know how hard it can be to disprove a negative. I mean, it's, it's easy enough to prove that something did happen, but how do you prove that something didn't happen when people are saying that it did? You know, how do you defend yourself against that? And if you can undermine someone's character, then what does that do to your message? It undermines your message as well. So no, no doubt that the, these naysayers of Paul's day were, were claiming, you know, if he's, not, if he's not truthful about this one thing, what else is he not being truthful about? And, and the point being that Paul had every right to change his plans from time to time. Did, did that somehow make him fickle or unreliable? Or did it, did it make him a liar? You know, there, there's a, a big difference, a big distinction. A lot of people don't make this distinction today uh, between a, a lie and something that's simply not true. Did, did you realize there was a difference? A, a lie is a deliberate de attempt to deceive someone. But I could say something I believe to be the truth, and I'm not lying about it, I'm just wrong. Okay. Um, recall that on his second missionary journey, Paul wanted to go preach in Asia. When he was leaving Antioch of Pisidia, he wanted to go preach in Asia. How come he didn't go? Holy Spirit forbid him to do it. Then he said, thought, well, I'll go up into Bithynia. Same thing happened. So his plans, the thing that what he wanted to do, changed. Here on this third journey, later on, you know, we're going to see Paul spending uh, three months at Corinth. He plans to go direct from Corinth to Jerusalem, but he finds out about a plot from the Jews, and then he decides instead he's going to take the long way around. We talked about that in the introduction. He's going to go back up through Macedonia and go around. He, he's trying to get back to Jerusalem because part of, a big part of his third missionary journey was, was collecting these funds for the needy saints in Jerusalem. But he changed his mind. Again, did that make him a liar somehow? And, and that's what he's pointing out here in this chapter to them. <clears throat> you know, I, I really don't know why that was the issue that it was at Corinth. It seems absurd to me. But it just goes to show that the things that we can get all, get all bent out of shape over um, are sometimes just that. They're, they're kind of absurd, especially in the grand scheme of things. So any comments about Paul changing his mind here? Okay. <clears throat> all right, his travel plans. Uh, question 18, Paul professes that his word is as faithful as what two things? Now, I think the first answer is pretty obvious, but... As faithful as God. As faithful as God is faithful. That's pretty faithful, isn't it? God cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18, Titus 1.2. Paul uses the same expression. God is faithful twice in his first letter to the Corinthians. 
the other answer may not be as obvious, depending on your translation, but in verse 19, does anybody have the second answer to this question? Okay, the promises of God in Christ. God promised to raise Jesus from the dead. God kept that promise. Okay, that, that's the, the ultimate yes, the ultimate promise fulfilled. And if God can keep that promise, he's going to keep all others. Question uh, 19, why had Paul changed his plans about going to Corinth? The hint is in verse 23, to spare them. In order to spare them. You know, spare them from what? It's kind of the obvious question. And, and what we're seeing here is, is a glimpse into the attitude of, of a servant of Christ who's put in the position of having to rebuke someone. And we see Paul doing this out of love. We see him doing it out of restraint. He does it with a, a great amount of patience. Uh, no doubt he has delayed his travel to Corinth for their own spiritual welfare. Welfare. If he had gone straight to Ephesus, excuse me, straight to Corinth from Ephesus, right after writing this letter, there would have been this kind of cloud of sadness over everything. He wanted this to be a joyous occasion, so he puts that off a little bit. And just real quickly from chapter 1, points to ponder, uh, since the fall... Uh, the futility talked about in Romans chapter 8, which would include adversity, affliction, the trials, the tribulations, even the temptations of this life. You know, that's been a, very, a part of the very fabric of man's existence, hasn't it? The aim of adversity and affliction is to do what? Strengthen, to strengthen us. You know, that seems to go about, uh, against our very nature to think about it that way. But that's the reason James could say in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Uh, God provides aid in our affliction in the form of what? Comfort. And we pay that comfort forward to our brethren. We provide comfort to others. God answers prayer. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is Wait, or not now, okay? Uh, Luke chapter 18, we see a parable there. It talks about the, the benefit in persistent prayer. Maybe the answer is not now. Maybe the answer will be yes at a later date. Our boasting should be in one another. And as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see that our joy should be in one another. And then God is faithful. Cameron, if you'll go ahead and swap that over. And I'm going to begin by reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Remember, Paul has intentionally bypassed Corinth for the time being in order to spare them. We just talked about that. So as we read this, I want you to kind of listen to the, the, the loneliness in Paul's heart that comes from having done that. And when I say loneliness, and because I've, I've got this kind of a chapter title, The Problem of Loneliness for chapter 2. And when I say loneliness, I don't necessarily mean that, that Paul is alone, that he's by himself. But have you ever been just surrounded by people but still felt alone, isolated? And, and maybe just, this is sort of a spiritual 
isolation. And then pay attention also to how Paul deals with that loneliness. So beginning in verse 1, Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And in verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So if we were to summarize this chapter and the effect of, of loneliness on Paul, we could see in this case that the loneliness manifested itself as, as discouragement, as disappointment, disappointment in not having met up with Titus and Troas, disappointment in not having received an update about the brethren in Corinth. And, and the result of that disappointment, that discouragement, was that he bypasses this door of opportunity that is open to him. Um, that's not a good thing. But I suppose that Paul could have just sort of wallowed in his disappointment, and maybe that would have affected this door of opportunity that was open to him anyway, had a negative impact on that. But instead, what does he do? He gets moving. He goes on to Macedonia. And so whenever we are affected in this way, and, and we all are from time to time, whether it's loneliness or disappointment or discouragement, we, we need to be able to do the same thing. I'm not saying bypass doors of opportunity. What I mean is we need to get up and get moving. We don't want to just wallow in, in, in what's been called self-pity, right? Um, we need to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
Keep on keeping on, as the saying goes. All right, so the question here, question number one, what was Paul determined not to do? Another painful visit, to come to them in sorrow, depending on your translation. Um, so what did we learn from chapter 1 was Paul's plan when visiting them. He was going to leave Ephesus, go direct to Corinth. From Corinth, go north to Macedonia. From Macedonia, go back to Corinth to give them that second benefit. It's talked about in verse 15, chapter 1 and verse 15. But Paul doesn't do that. He wants to spare them. We saw in verse 23 of chapter 1. Um, so again, he wants to avoid this, this cloud of, of, of uh, sorrow and this sadness. And he wants it to be a joyous occasion. Um, any comments on, let me throw the answer up there. Paul not wanting to go to them in sorrow. I think that's pretty straightforward of, of, of what he's thinking about here. Uh, question number two, why did he write his previous letter? Because they had a lot of things going on that they needed corrected. Okay. And specifically in verse three, he says, so that he would not have sorrow over those who ought to give him joy. Um, we ought to bring joy to one another, right? We talked about in chapter one that we should be able to boast in one another. But we also ought to be able to, to, to bring joy to one another. But what happens when a brother or a sister is caught up in sin and hasn't repented of that? The joy is replaced by sorrow, isn't it? Concern. You know, the, the very thought of having to admonish or rebuke a brother or a sister brings all kinds of emotional baggage, doesn't it? And sometimes that even prevents us from saying something. Because we're, maybe we've become more concerned about how they're going to react to that admonishment. <clears throat> and so often when someone is wrong, it's, it's pride and it's stubbornness that can cause them to react in, in unpredictable ways. Often pushing us further away and, and for themselves just kind of digging the hole even deeper, right? Um, where, the point I'm making is where is the joy in all of that? We should have joy in one another. So any comments on the joy we should have for one another or even admonishing or rebuking a brother? Okay. Question number three, how did Paul write as he penned his letter? In other words, what was his, what was his emotional state as he's writing this letter? Saddened. Um, verse 4 actually says uh, he wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Uh, this this kind of makes me think of the, the rebuke and the admonishment that, that our elders must use from time to time. How that similarly with affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears they have, they have to do that sort of thing. Not only because they... Uh, the love they have for every member here, but also out of a sense of, of duty, a sense of responsibility. Um, according to Hebrews 13, 17, they, they have the solemn responsibility to, to watch out for our souls. And, and we sometimes end the thought right there. But it goes on to say, and they must give an account 
to God. And that's a, that's a huge burden for anyone to bear. Which is why Hebrews 13, 17 goes on to further say, let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So that passage tells me that if I'm bringing grief to the elders, no matter what the reason is, that that is not going to be profitable for me. Uh, also couldn't help but think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 here. Anybody remember what that passage says? Live peaceably with all men. You remember that? It does say that, but that's not all it says. <laughs> it says, if it is possible, is it always going to be possible? Not always. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, will it always depend on me? Not always. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And it's been rightly stated that the difficulty in that passage is not the if it is possible part, but rather the as much as depends on me part. The Bible is very clear. If there's any way possible, even if it means that I'm being wronged in some way, I am to live peaceably with all men. Of course, that includes our elders. That includes our brothers and sisters. That includes the people of this world. And yes, even those that don't like us. Even those that are spiteful toward us. So any comments on this question, Paul's emotional state as he writes the letter, the profitability of not bringing grief to the elders is, uh, is open here, living peaceably with all men. Any comments? Okay. Question four, what did Paul want to do with the man who had sinned and yet repented after their disciplinary action toward him? And the clues are in verses seven and eight. Forgive him, what else? Comfort him, what else? There's actually three, kind of three parts to that. We have forgive, comfort, reaffirm their love for him. So it goes beyond just forgiving. Forgive, comfort, reaffirm our love. Bonus question. Why? Because if they didn't, he, he could be overwhelmed with the grief from his sin and fall even farther away. Yeah, so New King James Version says swallowed up with too much sorrow. A lot of other translations will say overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And there was one translation I found that said overcome by discouragement. Now, chapter 2 and verse 5 says the punishment that was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for this man. Now, what are we talking about here? What man and what punishment? Yeah, we go back to the first letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. <clears throat> now every indication here is that he's referring to uh, this, this relationship between a man and someone who is not his biological mother. Okay? Because otherwise it would have said his mother, not his father's wife. 
Regardless, such was condemned under the old law. We could read that in Leviticus 18 and verse 8, Deuteronomy 22 and verse 30. Paul's making it clear that it's also prohibited under the new law, the law of Christ. And as I understand it, it was even against the Roman law of the time, which is why Paul would say it's not even named among the Gentiles. Um, Paul went on to say in that first letter that if left unchecked, it would influence others in negative ways. Recall the passage where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, Do you not know? This is one of those rhetorical questions because they knew. But do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So, so leaven or yeast as it's translated in the NIV is what makes dough rise. The power of leaven is used throughout the New Testament as a symbol of both good and evil. But here it's used in that, that sort of a negative sense. So how much leaven, how much yeast does it take to cause an entire lump of dough to be leavened? Not much. <laughs> uh, another way to think about that, how much poison would you need to add to a glass of water for the whole glass to be poisoned? Not much. Paul's rebuke of this man and the church for the way they handled it was stern, wasn't it? His instructions were difficult. He uses phrases like, don't keep company with them. Deliver such a one to Satan. The destruction of the flesh. And that seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? Worldly wisdom would take a much different approach and often does. I'm reminded of what the Proverbs writer said in Proverbs 15 and verse 10. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way. And he who hates correction will die. And so what is ultimately the reason for those drastic measures? Ultimately to save his soul. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying the punishment that was inflicted is sufficient. And there aren't a lot of details here, but the context suggests that sorrow and repentance were involved. And, and speaking of sorrow and repentance, Paul provides a kind of a, a litmus test for this uh, true sorrow later on in the letter, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. And we haven't gotten there yet, but I wanted to just bring it up this morning because it kind of fit very well right here. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 starts off by saying, For godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. Repentance that leads to what? Salvation. Not to be what? Regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. So we learn from this passage that there are two kinds of sorrow. There's a godly sorrow and there's the sorrow of the world or the Worldly sorrow. But that brings up another question. What is repentance? Think about that, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Think about how you would answer that question. Uh, we know that repentance is required for salvation. A number of passages tell us that. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, a very familiar passage. Uh, when the people's hearts were pierced by Peter's words, and they said, what must we do? What was the answer? You know it. Repent and be baptized. 
John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus, said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So we know there must be something involved in that. Uh, Paul would say essentially the same thing to King Agrippa over in Acts chapter 26 and verse 20 when he said, I declared that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. But again, what does it mean to repent? You had part of an answer. What was it? Turning away from sin, turning to God was the answer. That's a great answer. The Greek word for repent, repentance, is metanoia, which is literally means to reverse direction. It's referring to a change of mind. And so the, the best definition that I have heard is that repentance is a change of heart that produces a change in direction. And I might add that it's a change in the right direction. Yes, sir. David, uh, years ago when we attended this congregation here, there was a man that fell away from his wife and moved in with uh, another woman. We had no elders at that time. So four of us men decided to go. We had tried to contact this man and couldn't make contact with him. So we decided to go and confront him at his work. Uh, he worked in a situation where he was alone by himself. So I was a young Christian, and I was just going on for moral support, more or less. Anyway, when we got there, the other three guys wouldn't open their mouth. The good Lord gave me the words to talk to that man, and we broke the... We, we talked to him very seriously about his situation. I can tell you that... When I read his obituary about five years ago, and he was a faithful Christian, it brought great joy to me. And it can happen, folks. You need to get strong and go talk to those people. Because years later, we're talking 25 years later, that man passed away, and he's in heaven. So he repented, and he came back to this church. That's God's way, isn't it? Yeah. Um, is it possible to have a change of heart that does not produce a change in direction? What do you think? Okay. Uh, some might answer no to that question and simply say, well, if you, if you had a change of heart, then it's going to result in a change in direction. But I could go on, I could go from believing that what I am doing is not wrong to believing that what I am doing is wrong, but then be unwilling to do anything about it. Isn't it possible for me to do that? Uh, on the flip side of that, I could change direction but not have a change in heart, couldn't I? Could, can I could just sort of go through, mechanically just go through the motions but not really have a change in heart? So genuine repentance is a change in heart, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing and a godly sorrow about that results in a change in the right direction. And we just heard a perfect example of that happening. 
And it takes a lot of courage to go, as we kind of alluded to earlier, whether it's the elders or men of a congregation, it takes a lot of courage to confront someone about that just because um, obviously you're concerned about their soul, but there's also some concern about how they're going to react. And a lot of times it's an overreaction in a, in a sense. Let me also say you got to do that and with great love. Yeah. You can't go in there and hit somebody with a sledgehammer. Right. And then we saw Paul doing that, using love, using patience, right? <clears throat> that's, that's how he's doing it here. Uh, I, I've listened to a number of sermons by a preacher named Jason Harden. I don't know if any of you have heard that name before. I really like the one entitled The Principle of the Path. And I think about this a lot. And it just seems to fit here, and I wanted to share it with you. I can summarize that entire lesson with these six bullet points. One, every one of us is on a path. Two, and this is probably the most important one, is paths lead where paths lead. Doesn't matter who is on the path. Doesn't matter how you got on the path. Doesn't matter what your, your intentions are. Paths lead where paths lead. The decisions we make in life determine what path we are on. The paths we choose will determine our destination. Why? Because paths lead where paths lead. And there is only one path that leads to salvation. What path are you on today? What path am I on today? Uh, the same sentiment ex is expressed by the familiar passage over in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12 and also chapter 16 and verse 25 that there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. We could just as easily say there is a path that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. The, the point being that as we travel through life we are going to come to many forks in the road. We even talked about this Tuesday night in, in Nathan's class on Proverbs. And every one of those forks in the road is a decision point. Sometimes the decisions that we make are good ones. Sometimes not so good. But we should be constantly comparing the path we are on to the path that is laid out in the Bible. And when we find that we, somehow we've gotten off the right path and we're on the wrong path, as, as we all will from time to time, what do we need to do about it? We need to change direction. We need to get on, do whatever we need to do to get on the right path. A change of heart produces a change in the right direction, direction toward God. I've got about five minutes left here. Uh, <clears throat> later in this second letter, we, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. If you're still there, if not, turn over there. I want to look at the very next verse. Because right after chapter, uh, or 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, Paul commends them for the proper attitude on sorrow and repentance. He said, 
you sorrowed in a godly manner. Now, what does he go on to say about that? What diligence it produced in you. And if you're inclined to highlight or underline parts of your Bible or words, underline each of these words. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You know, too often we, we end or we cut off the thought about godly sorrow right there at, at chapter 7 and verse 10. But verse 11 gives us some more clues as to what is involved in godly sorrow. So diligence implies considerable effort or exertion on our part. Clearing refers to an eagerness to do whatever is necessary to clear ourselves of that guilt, of that sin. Indignation, that's a strong displeasure of something that is offensive. And we need to have a strong displeasure of the things that are offensive to God. Fear, to be afraid of those things that displease God or, or doing those things that displease God. A vehement desire, that's a longing to have and to restore a right relationship with God. Zeal, that's to be excited about restoring and maintaining that right relationship. And then vindication, the idea that justice has been served, even if we are the ones being punished for it. So, any comments there regarding forgiveness, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, repentance, or how we should handle those, uh, Cameron, Josh Slaughter in the back, or how we should handle someone that has been disciplined. I know we talked about a lot right in there. Yeah, so, so the, the flip coin to um, this discussion here about the godly sorrow of, of the, the man who was in sin is the reaction of the congregation here. And it seems to be at least somewhat implied here that uh, they were having difficulty with doing what they should have done, of uh, forgiving him, showing love, and reaffirming their, their love for him. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we have to be very cognizant and, and aware of, you know, when someone has this godly sorrow and they repent, um, it's not up to us to put them on a probationary period, so to speak. Um, what does God expect of us? What did Paul expect of them? He says, when they have a godly sorrow, when they repent, you receive them back. You know, it, it, we don't get to make up our own rules as to uh, uh, when and how we're going to uh, receive them back. Uh, when they do what they're supposed to do on their part, we immediately have to do what we're supposed to do on our part, and that's to receive them back. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it a good thing that God doesn't put us on a probationary period? I like the use of that word. <laughs> uh, when we ask for forgiveness. But, you know, it, it's... <clears throat> a memory can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Um... Does it seem strange to anyone other than me that sometimes there are things that we'd like to remember and can't, and things we like to forget but can't? Maybe you're just wired that way. I don't know. but um, We can forgive, but we don't necessarily forget, do we? There's a, that old saying to uh, bury the hatchet and leave, and leave the handle sticking out. Isn't there a song that says something like that? Isn't that so true? So often we just leave the handle sticking out. By the way, that saying, bury the hatchet, as I understand it, comes from uh, 17th century America. 
when, when the Native Americans would be done with a battle, they would actually bury a hatchet to, to be symbolic of the end of that battle. But isn't it true that so often, though, that we have a tendency to bury the hatchet and leave the handle sticking out? For some reason, we want to be able to go back and find that hatchet and dig it up if we need to, right? But that's not God's way. We're to forgive, we're to comfort, and reaffirm our love for that person. So I'm just going to, uh, the next one is a real quick question. I think we have time for that, but then we're going to end it. Question number five, what was one purpose in writing to them as Paul had done? Clues in verse nine. For the sake of the one that they brought. And to test their what? Obedience. Obedience. Okay. So not only did the church as a whole have this godly sorrow that caused it to change direction. It caused them to handle the situation differently, but apparently the sinning brother in response to that had a godly sorrow that led to his repentance. And um, I got a considerable discussion on the next question, so we'll save that for next week and we'll, we'll end it right there. Thank you.